0: I'm Beth Bruno, and you're listening to The Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is a podcast for women who wonder how strength and weakness coexist, or how to bless both bravery and tenderness, for those longing to bring the fullness of their glory to the world without a chip on their shoulder. For those who have embraced a global sisterhood and left small storied lives behind, this is for you, the fierce and lovely women seeking the both and of a big storied life. Join me as I chat with fierce and lovely women around the world. On this episode, I talk with Diana Ostreich, and wow, she is fun. But before I introduce you to her, I wanna tell you a little bit about a lost story of a woman that my daughter discovered. So my 12-year-old is in seventh grade and she's in social studies, and they're learning about the Industrial Revolution, and so they were provided with a list of entrepreneurs to do a report on. Well, guess what? There wasn't one single female on the list. So, my daughter quickly did her report and then asked the teacher if she could do her own research and find a female entrepreneur during the same time period. And so, she discovered Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first woman in America to receive a medical degree. I didn't know this, never heard of her. She really championed the participation of women in the medical profession. And ultimately she and her sister, Emily Blackwell, uh, not only opened up a hospital for women and children, but eventually opened up a medical college in New York City for women, completely changed the face of medicine for women in America in the late 1800s. Emily Blackwell, y'all. There you go. Our lost woman of today. Well, Diana ostrike is also in the medical field, which is so fun. She is a writer, speaker, key relationships officer at Preemptive Love Coalition, but she is also a sexual assault nurse examiner and a war veteran. She was an army medic. Um, and stationed in Iraq. She is a justice activist, a wife, and a mom, and a Minnesotan. And I had so much fun talking with Diana. I hope you enjoy this conversation as we continue to explore what does it mean to be a fierce and lovely woman. Well, hello, Diana, and welcome to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. Well, I'm looking forward to talking with you more. Um, I feel like you and I sat near each other in a church in Michigan last year at um, the Refine, the the retreat that we did before Festival of Faith and Writing? Yes. Right? Were you at there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think we sat next to each other, never talked, and have actually gotten to know each other a bit through Instagram. So you're kind of one of those uh, online, online friends, online people that... Um, we would love to sit and have coffee face to face, but here we are, we're on the internet waves, um, finally getting to have a conversation. So I'm so glad to do this with you today. Can you start us off by sharing a little bit about who you are, kind of some of the things that we might not read on the on the little bio provided on your website? Um, who is Diana?
1: That is. I feel like that is such a beautiful question and rarely asked, so you kind of caught me off guard. But I would say first and foremost that I am stepping into my first identity as being a creation of God, that I am I'm first just made, made by God, um, made in love, and made to give goodness. And that's something that you no one writes on their bios anywhere, but I feel like that is, that's the foundation that I wake up with, and that is the lens that compels me to see see the people in my life and see the people across the world that we are creations of God in such a broken and beautiful way that that re- that restoration is is the family name like that is what what the world is after and so that mm-hmm. that's the part that you won't read anywhere but it's how i parent and it's how i show up and it's why why I choose to continue showing up in places that are uncomfortable and that I don't know much, but I see that 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 something's broken and restoration needs to happen because people mm. are disconnected and hurting and, and in most times hurting each other.
0: Diana, I love that, that restoration is the family name and just that we're all broken. You've begun to live into you said this is a new identity of realizing that in your own life and in the lives of those around the world. Is that did I understand that correctly that you you said this yeah. is a new identity?
1: I grew up in a church and in the American conservative Christian faith, but the identities there were much more as gatekeepers of the good things and gatekeepers of of God. And so the transformation for me has been a long one of finding out that it wasn't it didn't really have me at the center deciding what was good and who was good. Um, so it's been a, a transformation for me and one that as with most things, start when your world falls apart. So I was a combat medic in the Iraq War. I was shipped over there as part of the preemptive strike. In 2003, where we didn't declare war, we just shoved a whole bunch of troops, a troop surge over there. And I was mm. 23 years old. And, you know, at 23, you think you're an adult. But if you're older, you're like, oh my gosh, I was a baby. I really was just given viewpoints and I was given truths, but I really hadn't experienced much of them. Or what they really meant in relationship to other people. And so when I showed up as a combat medic and I spent over a year in the war there at 23, God just rearranged my world. And Mm. at the time, I thought it was the worst, you know, the thing that almost the pity party. That you look back and say, man, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I wish that didn't happen. But as a 39-year-old, I am so grateful that if I hadn't had God rearrange who I saw as us versus them, if I hadn't had him change that for me, I would have never been able to see the people that he loved. Hmm. And, and hmm. it really was, I call it my desert baptism because all the good things that I thought were good, I feel like God asked me to lay down in the sand and he said, no, no. And so I really had to give up things that I saw were the best parts of me, of my country, of my service, of my church culture. He asked for it all <laughs> and, and, it, and I gave, I laid him down and I feel like the life that I've been able to live, giving up those things has been more free and freedom I didn't know that existed to love. And to show up and to see God's image in people that I would have never noticed before because they were on the different side of the conflict or they were born in a different country or they had a different faith than I did. And Mm -hmm. so I really feel like He resurrected me (laughs) into a full life, a life that even if I gave my life away, I wouldn't really lose because love never fails. And so there's a death and a dying to what I believed <laughs> most of what I was born into my culture, my kinship with people that drew lines for me on who was good and who wasn't and who deserved good things and who did not. Um, mm-hmm. That all got burned up in the war. And today I am so grateful that, mm-hmm. that he had enough mercy for me, enough vision for me. He held my future for something so much greater Than I thought I was made for.
0: Mm -hmm. When you were over there during that year, um, I'm I'm sure there's so many layers, right? It was the overall experience. It was your fellow soldiers. um, But did you did some of this transformation and 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 brokenness come from interaction and relationship with Iraqi people? Was that was there? Are there some specific um, stories or people that helped jar you? out of kind of that that before into the after of your faith and your view of life?
1: Yeah, I look back on it today and there's probably four different people who gave me an experience that were absolutely like night and day electric, but there's two in the very beginning with Iraqis that I wanted to share with you. And the first one was when we were going to be driving over into the active war zone, we we're going to drive in our trucks and it's called a convoy. And they had briefed us the night before that it was a common enemy tactic. And this was Al Qaeda, but who most would say now is ISIS um, through how things go. And so they'd said that the enemy oftentimes will push little Iraqi children in front of the convoy in order to halt the convoy. And then they would attack soldiers At the rear of the convoy. And so they said in no uncertain terms, it is your duty to keep the convoy rolling at all costs tomorrow. And if you aren't able to run over a child in order to keep the convoy rolling and keep your battle buddies safe, then you need to stand up and identify yourself.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And that was the first time that that everything just felt like I was being torn apart on the inside because I knew that I had been taught by my church and by my family. I'm a third-generation Army veteran that there's collateral damage and there's sacrifice, and this is, this is to serve our country was to serve God. And to take a life for my country was to take a life for God. Hmm. So I knew all these things, and I was trained that way, and I, I believed it all. But at the same time, I felt this voice just in my head say, but I love them, Diana. I love them too. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't shake it. And I couldn't go to sleep that night, knowing the next morning I had a decision to make. Like would I would I run over an Iraqi child in order to keep my battle buddies safe? Um, whose life would I choose and whose life would I take if it came to that? And all night long I wrestled and I kept telling God, no, this is what we believe. This is this is okay. And I just kept hearing God just relentless, tell me but I love them, Diana. Mm. And so that was the first time that I had grown up in a pretty strict sanctity of life type of church. And so I really believe that God made life and nobody nobody had the authority to take away life that he made. And so I knew that truth, and then to look at little kids on the side of the road—they were three years old and four years old—and I couldn't shake that that life was just as sacred as, as my battle buddy who was wearing my same uniform. And so, but I just knew that God loved like that. That was who He was, mm-hmm. and everything I had learned lined up with that. So I was like, I don't know why <laughs> I was telling him, no, this isn't you know, quiet down now. Like this is not the time to be asking me to reevaluate my loyalties on this, like we're past this, but I, he just spoke so loud. And so I knew in that moment, I knew that I was either a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first and a soldier second, or I was going to be a soldier first and a citizen of heaven second, because they were asking me two different things and it was costly. Mm -hmm. Whatever I did was going to be really costly for my entire life. Mm, Yeah. Um, And I never had to face that reality until that night in the desert, Mm -hmm. in the tent, knowing the next morning we were rolling out at four in the morning. So I just knew I was either going to say yes to God or I was going to have to tell him to take second place. and, And I said yes to God to saying I wouldn't take a life, that I was a kingdom person and it was for life and not death. So that was the first one. And that was an Iraqi. <laughs> that was what like holding an existential up an Iraqi crisis
0: light. at age 23. That's crazy. Right? Yes. By
1: myself? <laughs> yeah, I feel like, and that's one of the reasons why I'm like, we should talk about this with our kids. Because I was all alone in a war before I had ever had anyone had this conversation come up. Hmm. And this was going to cost me for my whole life, whatever I chose yeah so that was the first one that rearranged how I saw who was us and who was them. That's okay. how God reinserted this family that He created people and He loved people. And it just wasn't mine to mine to decide who got life and who didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one was we were building we were building a a road to a little village right outside where I was stationed. and I decided, They were building a road. So, this is like an Iraqi summer. And it's like watching wallpaper dry, like to sit in the sun and watch someone build a road. And so, I was the medic. And so, I was like, I'm going to go to the village and just go house to house and go check things out. And you were never supposed to be alone because this was the beginning of the war where there was a lot of um, kidnapping of soldiers. Okay. And they wouldn't find them for a week and they would typically be dismembered. So you were always supposed to stay together, and I don't know why or how it happened, but I found myself walking through this little village um, in the heat of the day, in the afternoon, and nobody was around. I didn't have another soldier with me. There wasn't wasn't a single person out. And Mm -hmm. as I was walking, all of a sudden, I heard this little click-click sound. And I looked over, and this... Elderly woman had cracked open her little tin door that went into her compound, and women typically weren't out without a rel- a male relative, mm-hmm. so they kind of had to stay in their homes. So she cracked open her tin roof, and I saw her eyes lock on my eyes, and then she did the universal "come here" finger flick. You know where she's like giving yeah. me the like "come in here," uh-huh. and I remember looking at her, being like, "Oh my gosh." Like, I have a choice to make. She could either be inviting me into her home as a friend, or she could be inviting me in to her home, and there is it's a trap. Al Qaeda. Yeah, right behind the door, and nobody will ever hear from me again. They'll never know because I'm not with anybody.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just felt like standing in that dirt street staring at her, that there was something I had to choose either i was going to choose to trust someone who i didn't already know was trustworthy or i was going to act like i didn't see her and i would choose security and i would walk on by and for whatever reason i decided to trust her hmm. i just like her invitation to trust me when i am wearing i am wearing a weapon i am in my kevlar like i am in full battle rattle like why she would invite an american soldier into her home right that is not a safe thing for her right and so because she had this audacity hmm. to trust me, to invite me into the intimacy of her home and endanger her safety, something in me said, yes, like that's the kingdom of God. And that's who I want to be. And I was 23. So throw that in there.
0: Exactly. Right. <laughs> but I
1: walked into her home and it, and it changed the trajectory hmm. of my whole time in Iraq. She welcomed me. We bumbled through a little bit of my Arabic. She hugged me. That family, like she chose to saw me, see me mm-hmm. as not just a soldier, mm-hmm. but a daughter who is far away from home oh. and scared. And she is welcomed to me. And there is something about my soul that got put back together by her trust, by her invitation to see me instead of see all the reasons why she should avoid me,
0: mm.
1: and that relationship changed everything for me and meeting her grandkids and sitting around with her and turns out she was the matriarch of the whole village.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: So every house she took me to it was basically her daughter or her daughter-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> and and so that changed everything. I was told that she was my enemy. I was told that anyone who wasn't wearing our uniform was the enemy until proven otherwise. That's just wartime and so it rearranged like her love her preemptive love mm. choosing me first that just showed me something that i knew was bigger than anything else like this is love that transforms us mm. it chooses something bigger than security and safety and and it changed me wow. and it changed how i walked in that war it it's like she's the reason today why my kids have a wholehearted mother who is raising them in love instead of brokenness mm, wow like if there's any if there's a person on the planet that i could sit with and hug and think it would be her mm. like if she didn't do that if she didn't invite me i i could have done a lot of things in that war that would just make me a pretty broken human being mm-hmm. And I don't know how broken human beings parent kids into love, into life, and to freedom, into hope. Yeah. And so I, I would love to thank her. I pray she is alive mm. today. I wish my kids could meet her.
0: What is her name?
1: I actually don't know her name mm. because they use the formal title of grandmother or Om. Yeah. I believe her last name was Hassan. Om Hassan.
0: Right. Um, but everyone but called her grandmother. Called
1: her Om hmm. Yeah. But my I have a preemptive love teammate mm-hmm. and he grew up not far from where I was stationed in the southern part of Iraq. And he knows the village. Mm. He's like, yeah, and I totally know Alawaja. And mm. when things are different, he's like, I'd love to take you back there. And so the fact that I have an Iraqi friend mm-hmm. who we met through preemptive love um, is pretty healing to mm. me that he he also chooses to see me as more than a soldier and more than part of a country that really caused some devastating things in his country. And he was 17 when I was in his country as a soldier at 23. So it's been a really beautiful thing for us to be able to have a relationship because we each remember what it was like Mm. at that time. And We were kids. Like we were definitely both kids.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But just she humanized the people for you, brought you back in touch with your soul. I love how you phrased that. Diana, tell us a little bit about preemptive love. You So you've referenced it a couple of times. For those who do not know of this organization, can you just quickly... Tell us what the organization does and then tell us a little bit about your role with them, um, how that came to be and yeah, like what, what you're doing through, through them.
1: Yeah. Preemptive love coalition is a global movement of peacemakers who are confronting fear and violence with acts of love in order to create new stories Hmm. and unmake the violence that's been done between communities at odds. And so they started in middle of the Iraq war because they knew there was so much violence between Iraq and America and the different groups within Iraq. There's just been so much violence. And they believed that if you move towards somebody without already knowing if they were trustworthy or not, if you chose them first and love them, that this idea of preemptive love could actually create new stories, that we could heal and unmake the violence that's been done and have a future together. Wow. So I I in the middle of the war, I at one point, which I didn't tell you about, God asked me to lay down, like take the bullets out of my weapon and and just choose to love people, hmm. even if it would cost me. Even if it cost me my life, I would step in front of a bullet for an American, an Iraqi, anybody, but I would never take a life. So he really changed my posture in Iraq to this idea of choosing people first in love, Uh which I think is the posture of Jesus on the cross. But I came back and I didn't know what to do. I was like, well, I now know what I won't do, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to live differently. Because I was coming back to the same dynamics. Right, and
0: third generation. I mean, that is an entire way. Right. (laughs) That's family culture that you no longer belong to.
1: Yeah, and I knew that if I told my family, if I told my church community that I would no longer belong. Peacemakers were seen as the other. And so if I told them that I found the posture of peace on the battlefield of Iraq, I knew that it would most likely cost me the belonging in the places that I, I loved most, my church, my family, my community. And so I came back really lost. And the guy who I met a week A week before I I got deployed and he kept writing me the whole time, Like, I came back to him and we were going to get married, but I didn't know what to do. And so when I stumbled on preemptive love that said, hey, we can unmake violence, I raised my hand in my living room. I was like, that's me. I want my heart to be healed. I want to unmake the violence that I was part Mm -hmm. of that I saw. Like, It's not over for me. I can't just turn the page and say, "Well, that was a sad story," mm-hmm. the way so often we're told to do. Um, and so I, I emailed preemptive love <laughs> and said, "As a veteran, this is so healing. This is giving me words to the posture that God asked me to take in the war. It just really unleashed me to live out the things that I knew to be true, but I just didn't have words for it. I didn't know how to do it." And so they said, "That's awesome." why don't you join us? (laughs) And so I did. So I have been getting to be part of work for Preemptive Love for the last almost four years. And it's really been the most healing part of being a veteran, of being a Christian, of being a mother, of being someone in my community who no longer thinks that violence isn't harmful or that it doesn't break things for generations. So they really gave me a place to put my hands on remaking Mm. the world Mm. and unmaking violence and building bridges between people. So I'm their key relationships officer, which means that I get to build relationships. And oftentimes that's through churches, um, people who have a passion for the Middle East, people who want to care for refugees, people who want... To cross divides in their, in their own communities, but they don't really know how, because right. our culture really hasn't taught us how. They've taught us how to make divides, but they haven't really taught us how to cross
0: them. Right. And there's the theoretical- So that's
1: what I get to do with principle. Like.
0: Yeah. I was going to say there's the theoretical how to, and then there's the actual practical, no, but really how, right? So are you right? facilitating kind of the yeah. both of those things?
1: I do. And so oftentimes, churches, especially after the election, where a lot of churches felt they had the call to care for refugees and the marginalized, but they were so divided on what that would look like. And so I got a few calls from the pastor who said, well, why don't you come out and why don't you talk about this? And I was like, great. (laughs) Great. excuse me, give me that job. But it was really powerful to be with people and to invite them to a better story than they've been told. That it's not either or, Mm. that you can care for refugees and you can care about security.
0: Right, right. You
1: can be, you can love Christians and you can love Muslims. Right. And the one that I got the most pushback on was when I said that you didn't have to choose between Republicans or Democrats. (laughs) And this is down south, so they're like, "Hold on,
0: we no longer speak that language."
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, like that was the greatest divide they they saw. And so I get to come to churches, whether it is on a Sunday or with their small groups or their kids, and just tell stories about how we get to empower refugees to reclaim their lives Mm -hmm. from the ashes of Mm -hmm. war, and that there's so many hopeful stories happening in Iraq. And that's the number one reason why I ask people to follow our blog and to follow our website because it's most likely the only place you're going to hear hopeful Mm. stories of Iraq and Syria and it's happening. We're seeing beautiful things Mm. happen. And I think people need to know that that's happening. And the second thing is I monthly support preemptive love so that when I see those headlines come across, my kids are like, oh, but mom, we're helping a Syrian put their business back together, or we're helping those kids go to school. And so I feel like it counterbalances Mm -hmm. the despair Mm -hmm. of the violence by knowing that we're committedly part Mm. of equipping the people there to live full Mm. lives. So in a way, it's selfish that I need to be part of the good so I don't get sunk with the mm. despair that I see.
0: Tell us about, tell us one story of hope.
1: Oh, so I was, I was, oh, there's just so many. <laughs> there's so many. I'll tell you one of my favorites. Um, you may have heard about the Yazidi yes. people that they were targeted mm-hmm. by ISIS for genocide mm-hmm. because they had a different yes. faith. So they're this tiny little group of people and so many of them were executed or they were taken as sex slaves. And so there are these, there's this family that we started working with who had ran from ISIS, ran from their homeland and they were Yazidi. So they just weren't embraced by um, the community. Even as refugees, they were, they were kind of pushed to the side and looked down on and distrusted just just for who they were. And so we started getting to know them and they became soap makers. My teammate was like, well, what can you do? They're like, well, we, we don't know how to do anything. And she's like, no, you are the answer to your to your own future. Hmm. And we're just going to sit with you until, until you really feel it and you find it. And then I'm going to stick with you through the whole process of learning how to make soap and learning how to be a business person, because you have it mm. in you, um, and so they became soap makers. And so there's four soap makers, and I just got to watch it go from, you know, sitting in their tent, mm. you know, just the blue ones, and not being able to feed their kids and not being able to to really exist. Like there was no future, mm. and the despair of that is just tangible. Mm and then to see how they learned how to make something and then they got to sell it to their neighbors and they had the dignity of having some having made something that was quality mm. that their neighbors wanted and so they sold their their soap to their neighbors and now their neighbors kids are able to wash their hands they're having better hygiene people aren't getting as sick so this usefulness that's just lifted up their whole community mm. and I was just there in November, and we got to go have lunch at their house. And three of them are sisters and sisters-in-laws. And so just getting to see them, we're eating lunch in their home, and then um, they point across the street. And they're like, see those blue tents? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, that? That's now where our sheep live. <laughs> but before before you, be, you were our friends, before Preemptive Love taught us how to do this, that's where we mm. lived. And now today I'm offering you I'm offering you lunch where I could never have done that in those tents. And so to see this transformation that just comes from relationship that commits that stays in has been just such a story of hope for me when I don't feel like the world is going to mm. ever change. When I look at those four families and say their children have a future, and they they feel transformed because they have friendship, not an aid organization. Mm. They don't even think that preemptive love is a thing. They think our founder, Jessica. They're like, you know, Jessica. <laughs> so they call preemptive love Jessica because that's who she is wow. to them, a mm. friend. And I have two little boys who are 10 and 11. And so after the lunch, I snuck outside with one of their sons and he... As boys do, they uh, took me up to the roof. <laughs> you know, anything to get away from the big group. <laughs> and just standing on that roof with Goze's son and seeing him look around, standing on top of his house in in the evening, in the middle of this refugee camp. But he had a hope and his family was thriving. It was just mm. a really... um like indescribable moment to say that so many things have been broken and yet so many things are rejuvenating. Mm. That there's bright green grass of Mm. hope in this child's Mm. life because people in America chose to care about Mm. his family and support him. So it was really restorative to come back to Iraq and see things, see a family being just lit up by friendship and a future and their business right. owners. People in the states can buy their soap, not as a pity thing, but because it's really mm-hmm. good soap.
0: There's something about that. And that does something. Right? For There's you. something sacred about working. Um it's it's the first gift we're given as humans is the, the gift of work and stewarding um the land and the animals and There's something about that, I think, that so is innately in us as part of the image of God, how we were created to just to work. And so to give that to people, that dignifying and image-bearing call to work, I think is one of the things that leads to hope, that leads to transformation. So I I just love that story.
1: I feel like there's a dignity and a wholeness that comes when we get to see the work of our hands. And I see the same need when I look at some of the issues in the States. I'm like, people need to feel like they have a job that gives them the dignity of work well done and providing for their family. And when people don't feel like they have that, right, Mm -hmm. it can get Mm -hmm. really ugly. People can get really extreme or really, I think they either go to hate or they go to hopelessness, Mm -hmm. which both are, are just death to the soul mm-hmm. I think
0: yeah So um, for people who would want to get more involved with preemptive love um, are there there's ways to buy products on the website I've right I've got one of the candles that a, yeah. a group of the sisterhood candle that I think is part of a preemptive love partnership right So tell us some ways that people could get more involved
1: Yes yeah So one I would say just sign up to get the email updates of good news because it's it's our relational connection that really gives us hope and really transform us. And secondly, I would say jump on our webpage and see see the things that these refugees are making. There's just beautiful things. There's candles, there's soap. We have a few ladies in a Syrian refugee camp who are just incredible knitters. And they make these washcloths and then they make these baby sweaters. And I think there's just this way of honoring another person that when you get to see the work of their hands, it just mm-hmm. changes how I think the narrative has been that they're helpless and hopeless and victims and that's Mm. not at all Mm -hmm. who they are and getting to see that changes us. And also I, for me committing to a monthly amount really makes me feel like I'm in a committed relationship to them because what war decimates in a minute, it takes a lifetime to Mm. rebuild And I don't want to be hot and cold, and I don't want to have my commitment to people to follow Mm -hmm. the news cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I find for our family, and and it doesn't have to be preemptive love, it can be um, something in your community, it can be someone else. But I would just say that commitment, when you see that little amount get taken out of your account every month, it reminds me that I'm in relationship. It reminds me that I'm part of the mm-hmm. restoration of that family, of mm-hmm. that country. And we're all going to celebrate all together mm-hmm. at one time, <laughs> you know, at the, at the end. And so I think the more that we can just mm-hmm. commit and one tiny way is we start with our money, but I hope our hearts follow. I think that is part of restoring our connections that we've been told to not have. We've been told to pit against each other. And so I think that's a really important way mm-hmm. to do that. And I'd love you to do it with friends of love, but I also really think do it in your communities. Um, just commit. And then your kids are going to notice. And then you're going to get to tell your kids. Um, my, my youngest son did a... Uh, he did a little lemonade stand and he was so excited in the summer to send money to to the kids. He's like, you know, <laughs> the kids. And so he doesn't see refugees as like a thing. He's like, no, no, the kids that we're friends with that we, you know, help go to school. I was like, "Oh mm-hmm. yeah." So he sends in his quarters and his dollars supremes of love. And then at tax time, he gets a letter saying, "Dear Zalalem, thank you so much for waging peace with us in Iraq mm-hmm. and Syria." And so in January, he gets reminded mm. of the love that mm. he sent and that he's part of. And so I think we're just creating these rituals with our kids mm-hmm. of relational investment and commitment. And I love to see it continue with mm. each of my yeah. sons. Um, they're, they're better for it and they see people differently and they think that Iraqis are our friends. <laughs> they don't think it's a country, they don't think it's just this removed place. They're like, "Oh no, you know." And I'm like, yeah. "Yep." Those are Iraqi friends. And it, it changes things. It changes how they think and sure. how they
0: talk. And it's going to change how they go out into the world and are citizens and uh, adults and whatever they find work they find themselves in, their perspective will be completely different because you've given them a vision for the bigger story that God is telling in the world. I love it, Diana. I love your work. I, w- I think I want to work with them too, please.
1: <laughs> you should. That would be so great.
0: <laughs> oh, I, I love all of that. Um, as always, I feel like I could just continue to listen and ask you more and more questions. Um, thank you so much for the work that you are doing. Thank you for being open to God's voice when you were 23. Um, to allowing that transformation to occur and for bringing your wholehearted self to your family and to these Iraqi friends. Thank you for what you've been able to share with us today.
1: Well, I'm so grateful that you have made a place for people to share their stories of feeling brave and fierce and and (laughs) wimpy all at the same time. So I'm so grateful that you're inviting us to Mm -hmm. hear each other's stories here. I think that is that is just life and it's energy where we get to hear each other oh. and be connected to the beautiful things and the hard yeah, things the both
0: together. And. Thanks, Diana. You're welcome. As I consider Diana's words that she found the posture of peace on the battlefield of Iraq, I'm struck by what we've been exploring here on this podcast. Diana went to Iraq with an assumption of what fierce looked like. She thought she knew what it would mean to join God and fight injustice. And there in the face of an Iraqi child, an Iraqi woman, she discovered lovely. She discovered what it looked like to join God and bring forth life and beauty. And it was different than what she assumed. And it's changed the trajectory of her life. I am struck by that. And I find it to be so beautiful. I'm so moved by her work with Preemptive Love and the posture that she has come to embrace. It's that strength and weakness. It's that both and. It's a great picture of fierce and lovely. I hope you were encouraged by Diana and I hope you stay connected to the work of Preemptive Love as well as her own. This is Beth Bruno and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast.